So good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome um, to this very exciting first um, event of a new speaker series that we're offering here from the Sati Center. My name is Vanessa Abel. I'm one of the faculty of our Buddhist chaplaincy training program. Um, and I lead the online training program. And this year, for the first time, um, we've had this idea to make a space here at the Sati Center for Buddhist chaplains and for conversation around Buddhist chaplaincy. So we'll be having this series for the foreseeable future. Um, and we'll be inviting chaplains, Buddhist chaplains, people working in and around Buddhist chaplaincy to come and talk about their work, their experience, their training, the things that are important to them. And so we welcome you all to join us in these conversations. So kicking off for us today, um, I'm so happy to let you know that we have the Reverend Max Hukai Swanger with us. I'll tell you a little bit about Max. Um, Max was raised Jewish and Presbyterian, and he later converted to Buddhism when he was at college. After college, he lived in a Buddhist community for 15 years, and he ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest. Later, he began training to be a chaplain, he is a former participant of our Buddhist chaplaincy training program here at the Sati Center. And then he went on to complete his clinical pastoral education as a resident for a year at UCSF. While starting to work as a chaplain, he then earned a Master's of Divinity degree and he became board certified as a chaplain. Prior to serving at his current job at the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, he worked at the Stanford Children's Hospital and the VITAS, V-I-T-A-S, hospice for three years. In addition to being a chaplain at Valley Medical, Max also provides Buddhist ministry and teachings, and he lives with his wife, Katie, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, Max... Without further ado, nice to see you this morning. Nice to see you. Nice to see everybody. Let me um, try to get my slides going and then good good morning or good day. I guess people are zooming in from other places. It's a nice, beautiful morning here in Santa Cruz, California. And um, Vanessa, thanks for the introduction. My sister saw my bio and reminded me that my grandmother was Lutheran, <laughs> but I tend to think of it as Presbyterian because when she came, we would go to the Presbyterian uh, church. So I do have some Christian and Jewish background, but in general, um, not religious, not a religious family. I'm the only one who became interested in religion. A um, couple things, this talk, I will talk a little bit about my journey to becoming a Buddhist. I'll also then talk about the Sati program and clinical pastoral training and my current work and also talk about ongoing training. And like, as Vanessa was saying, you see my name there with the letters, um, not doing that to be pretentious, but because in our field, I want to talk about things that are helpful for us as chaplains. So, for example, the MDiv, getting a Master's of Divinity is helpful and becoming board certified is as well, but not necessary to work as a chaplain. I had neither of those degrees when I started in hospice. And ordination is also not necessary, but can be helpful. So I wanted to start out with a reflection. So as chaplains, working as chaplains often, if you're 
leading a group in a, I work in a hospital. So if I'm going to start, say, with the palliative care group, I'll have a reflection in the beginning and often something at the end as well. This reflection I picked um, has to do with the Buddha. As you can see, Buddha is there with the sick monk and has to do with chaplaincy. So one day the Buddha was visiting a monastery and he came across a room where a monk was in pain and was sick. Um, although there were many other monks at the monastery, not one of them was concerned with their sick brother. The Buddha, beholding this woeful situation, began to look after the suffering monk. He called Ananda. I think Ananda's there in the photo as well. That was his cousin and assistant, as many of you may know, and they bade the monk change his dirty bed and eased his pain. The Buddha admonished the monks of the monastery for their neglect and encouraged them to nurse the sick and care for the suffering. He concluded by saying, whosoever serves the sick and suffering serves me. So whosoever serves the sick and suffering serves me. So my Buddhist journey began in college, my freshman year, I was around 18 years old, um, was adjusting to being a freshman in college and having, um, you know, some anxiety and uh, trouble studying and was introduced to yoga, which was helpful. And I was also introduced to MBSR, which many of you know is mindfulness-based stress reduction I learned this at a hospital and was taught by a doctor. And MBSR, as some of you may know, uh, I think was developed by John Kabat-Zinn, who is a practicing Buddhist, but is not, is not necessarily Buddhism. It's taught in a secular way. Um, and I remember the, the biggest part, the big teaching for me there was, I mean, the first thing they put on the board was there's pain and there's suffering. And we can't avoid pain, but we can avoid some sufferings. Many of you probably know about the second arrow. We get one arrow can hit us and we're sick. And instead of just trying to get better, we put another arrow into ourselves wondering, how long will I be sick? How did I get sick? When will this end? We add to our pain with suffering. So MBSR was the beginning of these learnings. And in some ways, it was a gateway to Buddhism for me. I then was given a book by Pema Chodron called The Wisdom of No Escape. And I really liked that title because knowing from whenever I have anxiety, there's that feeling of fight or flight or wanting to escape and learning that we can sit with whatever is coming up. As Buddhists, we can sit with our pain. We can sit with our anxiety. We can sit with that second arrow as well, and we can watch those thoughts go by. <clears throat> One thing we learned out here in California, I learned this in junior guards, and as a surfer, is if a big wave is coming at you in the ocean, and you're, let's say you're surfing and it's outside and it's going to break on your head, that's very scary. But what we learn is you can actually go underneath the wave. In the same way, we can let our thoughts go by. So in my Tibetan Buddhist study, I'm learning about that, learning how to, beginning to learn to meditate, learning the teachings of karma and rebirth. And for me, I really connected to Buddhism for whatever reason. And in so much that I wanted to go to Nepal to study and actually had a ticket to Bangkok. And, to, but then I found, um, Zen Center in the Bay Area, San Francisco Zen Center and ended up at Tassajara. So this slide has Green Gulch Farm Zen Center, which is part of San, San Francisco Zen Center consists of Green Gulch Farm, uh, Tassajara and and city center in the city. I spent three years at Tassajara and five years at Green Gulch Farm. I think half a year at city center. 
And I bring this up because in this way, I was training and training to be a, a Buddhist priest, a Zen Buddhist priest. I know some people here on the call might be secular Buddhists. It might be in the mindfulness tradition. For me, um, and I'll get to that in the next slide, I did study mindfulness as well. But having a base in religious training has been helpful for me as a chaplain, base, uh, base in ceremony and um, practicing in more of a, a religious setup with priests and lay people and incense and robes, things like that. Uh, I sewed my robes at Green Gulch. That took a year. I said, Namo Kie Butsu. I took refuge in Buddha in every stitch. Next, I, after I left Green Gulch, I went to Spirit Rock and became a, a vegetarian cook there for five years. Um, I loved working there. I learned, I was able to sit many retreats. Uh, I set a couple month long retreats, which if you have time, I recommend if you're in the insight tradition, that to me was an amazing change from the Zen tradition for it to have a longer sitting time and, and the style of Vipassana of notice, you know, actively noticing thoughts. Sometimes with Zen, it's, concentration more of a shamatha or concentration practice whereas vipassana insight was a little bit of you know was different for me in certain ways there was of course concentration as well anyway being there was also where i met gil fronsdale and he spoke to me about the sati center and i started doing the training that some of you are enrolled in this year so i'm really happy that you're doing that that training set me on this career before being a chaplain. It was, yeah, a, I don't want to say a Dharma bomb, but a Dharma person living in, you know, Green Gulch and Spirit Rock. And then, um, and, you know, I didn't want to, I knew cooking wouldn't be for the rest of my life. So I was ready to try something else. So in this slide, you know, I have a picture of Laguna Hana hospital because at Sati center, my volunteering was at Laguna Honda, um, which is in San Francisco. And it's it's a hospital, but it actually seems more like a long-term care center. I would go once a week and I would see six or seven patients. And there was I would spend a lot of time with them. There's one patient I would spend about an hour with. I think I volunteered for, I can't remember, maybe a few hours every time I went. Um, but I mentioned that because as I get into the different hospital trainings, if you all in your, who are in the group want to, you know, are thinking about volunteer experiences, there are experiences like at the hospital I'm at in, um, San Jose Valley Medical Center. But I, I believe Laguna Honda also has volunteers and it's, it's a good place to start in some ways because it's, there's not trauma center. It's, it's, uh, just a slower pace. And it's almost like visiting a nursing facility where people are there for a longer term stay. So after CPE, or sorry, after Sati program, um, I didn't apply. So usually with CPE, you apply in the fall. CPE, um, for those who don't know, is called Clinical Pastoral Education Training. Um, I highly recommend this for anybody who, well, if you want to work as a chaplain, you're going to need to do four units generally, so at least one unit. So with CPE, I did mine at UCSF. The picture on the slide here is of Mission Bay. There are multiple campuses. I was actually at Parnassus on the hill, and I was um, I was in the neurology unit. I, so I did the one-year training. You can also do one, you know, one unit for, I think it's usually 10 or 12 weeks. You can also do UCSF had an extended unit, which was from, you know, maybe for nine months. And you come, those, those students would come in once a week and learn in the day and then be on call at night. Um, if you have the time to do a year to do this training, highly recommended. I'll get into a little bit what it's about. Um, a couple of the logistics, I would say, is you're going to do a year training. You can't be doing a job at the same time. You're there full time, Monday through Friday. 
um, eight hours a day. Plus I was on call for a 24 hour shift once a week. Um, they do, they did pay us. I'm trying to remember. I think it was some, not a lot like 35 or 40,000. So in San Francisco, that wasn't really enough to live. But for me, I, I stayed at a, a small Buddhist temple and was able to rent a room there for quite cheap. I think it was 700 a month. So I was able to live off that stipend. I do mention that because it's something that you'll have to factor in. If you do do a one unit, I think you actually do have to pay for that unit. So for me, it was, you know, in the beginning, finding a place to live. I lucked out that there was a temple I could live at. And um, the other thing I'll mention too, so if you're thinking about doing CPE, you could apply now. Although I think you're not going to have the experience that you need and it might be hard in your interview. If you applied now, that would be to start next September. Most likely you'll apply when you're done with the SATI program um, next September, but then you'll have to wait a year. So that's what happened with me. I waited a year um, after the SATI program and like I went to Japan for three months to help be a teacher assistant with some students. I um, And then I just sort of did whatever I could while I was waiting for the, the program to start. So I was on the neurology floor in the beginning, the first week we get to pick um, where, you know, what you're interested in. Is it oncology, neurology? Is it uh, pediatrics? You would think about what your interest is and, and put that in. I And neurology to me was interesting as somebody who's a meditator and interested in the, in the mind. Um, my floor consisted of an, an ICU with about eight patients. That's an intensive care unit, a step down unit, which is like, um, actually this, this other unit was probably more like a medical surgical unit. And then, uh, just a neurology floor unit. The neurology floor unit had people coming, you know, who were getting ready for surgery or had finished surgery. And, um, it also had, you know, migraine study and sleep study patients that I would visit. So in when you're in CPE, you're not a volunteer. You're actually a chaplain on the floor, but you're just, you're learning on the job. We used to arrive around 8 a.m. There'd be a reflection, kind of like the one I gave you guys, but generally non-denominational, non-religious reflection, because your group consists of, we had a Catholic priest in ours, a rabbi. Um, we actually had, I think it was 13 people. And we had five Buddhists, which is unusual. Chaplaincy has typically been dominated by Christians. Um, I think even the name, you know, chaplain comes from the Christian tradition. A lot of places like where I work now, I'm actually called a spiritual care coordinator. Um, that's my official title, although I do wear a, a badge that says chaplain because people understand what that means. Another thing I was able to do at UCSF was lead a mindfulness group for the neurology residents. Um, if you have experience in mindfulness or leading, that's something you can do. If you're working as a chaplain or you're a volunteer chaplain, um, there's a, I have a volunteer at, uh, Santa Clara Valley Medical. He finished Sate last year. He was also trained as a, uh, mindfulness teacher and he's doing, he's doing a six, six week, um, course in mindfulness for the, um, for the staff at the center. And it's a wonderful offering for them to be able to spend half an hour a week and um, participate in mindfulness. So, yeah. So being at the hospital is kind of, you know, there's a, it's a really intense schedule. Usually in the morning after the reflection, I'd go to the floor, I'd visit patients um, on the floor or in the ICU, prioritizing usually the intensive care unit. Um, in the afternoon, you would meet, you know, often you meet with your covenant group. That's a small group of chaplains that meet together. And this group, um, I've never had this in my other trainings, but it's a way that they talk to you about, you know, what you're doing well and what your growing edges are. So we are trained to actually tell each other, you know what, you know what, Max, you're not, you're not seeing this. You're, you're blind to this. So for example, I, I like to talk and in my group, I'd often something would come up and I would start talking in the beginning and people in my group uh, who, you know, were people of color and uh, 
they told me, you know, look, you as a white male, you have this sense of privilege. This is your, you know, learn about your social position. And I, and I hadn't learned about, I hadn't thought about that before in the Dharma centers I was at. So learning about my social position and stepping back when the covenant group, something would come up, stepping back and letting, even if it was silent, but letting somebody else talk before myself, not realize, understanding, beginning to realize that, oh, I, I had always been given this privilege that, oh, I, I can speak first. I can get the attention. So that was something that I learned that was interesting. The other thing that happens in CPE is you have a mentor. I had um, Susan was my mentor for the first two uh, units and then Abina for the second two. And the thing that the mentor does is they talk to you one-on-one. They would go and do visits with me. Um, I learned, I remember when I was doing visits in the beginning so with chaplaincy, we often have to knock on doors and it's kind of like, excuse me, like cold calls, like, hi, I'm, I'm Max, I'm with spiritual care, just wanted to check in, you know, and you don't know what you're going to get. Somebody might say, oh, wonderful, come on in or, you know, F off, get out of here. I don't, I don't want to see you, you know, and if people, if I open the door and people are saying, you know, I'm, I'm fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I say, okay. And I leave. But then my mentor, we were in the um, emergency department and in a, and I saw her go into, someone said, I'm fine. She went in, she pulled up a chair and sat down with this person and she sat and talked with him. And I watched as he opened up like an onion, just peeling away until 10 minutes into the visit, he was, there were tears coming down his Cheek, I thought, boy, this is the magic. This is the magic of chaplaincy that you can sit with somebody and be attentive and, and say, they say, oh, I'm fine. Okay, well, tell me about that. How How is that? How is it to be fine? Tell me more about that. Again, if they say something like, no, I really don't want to see you, then, you know, you can go. You know, or if they're asleep, you might not want to wake them, but maybe there's family there that you can talk to and you can and introduce yourself and provide care. So these are some of the learnings. Um, another thing that happened to me in my clinical pastoral training was um, right in the beginning, a Christian woman uh, exactly my age died in the ICU. And that was, I'm just going to say eye-opening for me because, you know, one thing you learn at a chaplain is you learn to be around dead people and you learn to be around a lot of grief. I know at the Sati program, we went... I'm not sure the online will do this, but the in person we went to Cabrillo College and we saw cadavers to get sort of acquainted with dead bodies. But it's for me, it was very different when someone was my age. Um, and I think she was, yeah, at the time in her in her thirties, and it was, yeah, I, I guess because somewhere in my subconscious, I just thought, oh, you know, people die when they're much older and blah, and no, people die at all times. I see people in my hospital now dying in their thirties. I see kids die. So that's a, that, that's an adjustment for sure. And that's a hard one. I mean, in my CPE as well, when I was on call, there was a, you know, there's a 13 year old that um, I still think about because he, I got to know him and he'd want to pray together. And then and then one day he came in and he died. And I mean, I, I, it's like these things, like really even feeling that right now in my body, like that we get to know people and, and they die in this profession. And that's really hard. Another thing about, yeah, with the CB is you learn to work with, you know, with many different faiths. Um, that was a change for me, having been a Buddhist and learning meditation and chanting, but then learning actual actual prayer. So um, learning how to pray in a Christian way. And one way that I do that and can show an example is like if somebody tells me some things like, you know, I'm not feeling, could you pray for me for my health? You know, my partner can't visit. Uh, my dog is sick right now. You know, and let's say they're Christian, you can pray in that way. You can say, you know, you can pray, you can say, Heavenly Father, Divine, Heavenly Father, I'm praying for Miss Jones. She's saying right now that she needs healing and she's sick. So we're praying for her healing. 
We want to lift that up and lift her up. And we want to give strength also to her partner who can't visit right now and pray for that. <coughs> Excuse me. She's awesome. <coughs> Sorry, a second. Something my. We're also praying for her dog who is ill. And we pray for all this and we're grateful for what you do, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So what you saw me doing there is a Christian prayer where I actually use Jesus. And I'm okay with doing that. I get that some people aren't. And I know, for example, my Jewish colleagues will not use Jesus Christ like that. But that's what I do in some ways for Christians or read the Lord's Prayer, for example, or Psalm 23. Um, The other thing that happens in CPE is work with covenant. Oh, and I did talk about the covenant groups. We work with verbatims. So that's where you go in. You probably do some of this in your Sate program, but you go into a visit and right when you come out, you write down exactly what you remember. Miss Smith said this, I said this, that, and the learning of that is that then your group can look at what your visit was like and, um, and analyze it and pick it apart and help you with that. So one example was I sat down with a patient and they, we're really interested in Buddhism. And I went on talking about Buddhism because nobody, you know, I had gone to so many visits and nobody wanted to talk about Buddhism. And my group said, Hey, you know, this visit is about the patient, not about you, not about your Buddhism. And they're right. You know, if somebody asks me about the Buddhism, I can talk a little bit about, but well, and what about you? What, what is it about you that interests you in Buddhism? You know, and how are you doing? How are your spirits today? How, How can I help you? Because there are people that, you know, in their situation, don't want to talk about themselves. Now, that's okay sometimes, too, that they might want a distraction, but just be clear that that's what they what they need, that they need a distraction. Sometimes people don't want to dig into how how sick they are and how scared they are with their sickness. And I'm speaking from the point of a hospital chaplain, which I am not necessarily, you know, a military chaplain or a or a prison chaplain. The other thing that happened in CPE was um, on call shifts, very difficult. We'd work from 4 p.m. till the next day, 4 p.m. So you'd go to sleep in a room there and have have a pager on me. Or if a code was called, a code is a code blue at the hospital. I am is when somebody's having a cardiac arrest. When you go to a code blue, um, it's a very intense experience because inside the room, the medical staff is feverishly working to revive someone or keep somebody alive. And you see people, you see the staff doing CPR, and it's not like, you know, and I'm speaking to you all if, if you've never experienced this, but it's different than what you see on TV where they're just barely touching the chest. They're compressing the chest down six inches. They're breaking ribs. The family's distressed. You're outside with the family. The family's distressed. The staff is distressed. If the patient dies, the staff, hopefully, at least where I am now, will do a moment of silence. The staff leaves the room, and guess who goes in? The chaplain goes in. And you are there with that dead person and the intense grief of that family. And I guess I knew you all are just starting chaplaincy, but I'm giving it to you real this is what happens when you work as a chaplain and this is, happens in CPE and that you have to be there and be there with that grief and hold that grief for that family. We had somebody, a code, we have code white at my hospital, which is a pediatric death. And we had one that I will probably always stick with me. The pediatric died and just being with the family and their intense grief and providing the care. They were Catholics. So I did bring the Catholic priest over because they did want um, uh, support from their own tradition. As chaplains, we do the best we can to support any patient from any tradition. You know, we are at least myself, I'm Buddhist. That's my tradition. But as a chaplain, I'm interfaith. I try to do everything I can for that patient and that family. Of course, If they're Catholic, I cannot, only a Catholic priest can give certain sacraments, like sacrament of the sick, so I'll have to get a priest. Um, But in general, we can provide care, we can do um, emergency baptisms for babies in the Catholic tradition, and we can provide care up to the extent of when they actually need somebody from their tradition. 
I think I learned a lot in that year from the patients, patients were my teachers, you know, just thrown into events like the person I talked about, the woman who died, who is my age. And I remember I showed up with two Bibles. I was kind of fumbling around the Christian family, got us into a circle to do a prayer, just trying my best to figure out how to do a Christian prayer and how to support them. And I wasn't my best then because I was just learning and we'll make mistakes in CPE, you make mistakes. You have a lot to learn. You have to learn that there's, you know, Latin used in the hospital, right? They might say, you might say NPO outside the room. I think it's nos por us. It's a Latin for nothing by mouth, basically. So if someone's going into surgery, they, they don't, they can't take any liquid. And I walked into a room, someone said, chaplain, can you get me some water? I'm so thirsty. And what would, what would you all want to do? You want to get them water. They're thirsty. But no, be careful. They, they can't drink because it's, I can't remember in that situation if I did bring the water or not. But if I did, then, then it's a mistake and they have to postpone the surgery. But again, CPE is a time to make mistakes. It's a time to learn. When I left uh, CPE, I then that was done in September. I was looking for a job. I wasn't able to find a job right away. I was hired as in patient relations at UCSF. Patient relations is kind of like the customer service department. And they were happy to hire new chaplains because we had the skills of listening. And I was on the phone a lot when somebody got the bill for their kid or for themselves. That was so much money and being yelled at. In some ways, I felt like it was just going into the world of uh, mad versus chaplaincy, which is not always sad, but can be. But I did patient relations job for a few, for I think a half a year. And that was a way to, they were also clear that I was going to be applying for chaplain work. And I was until I landed um, my first job uh, in doing hospice. And hospice in general is a little bit easier to find a job than than hospital work. Um, I'm not sure about other kinds of work, like, like I say, military or, um, you know, there's military chaplains, there's prison chaplains. I even know there's a chaplain I met who's in Tyson Foods, if you can believe that. So a corporate chaplain, I'm not quite sure exactly what he does, but my, my training has been in, in, in healthcare. I did. I remember when I was in CPE, the, I think it was the army, was looking for a Buddhist chaplain and I called them up and they were ready to like start training me during CPE. And I was like, what's going to, so it was something, I think one of these air force Travis base, some base in California, but then I was going to be deployed to Germany right after CPE. And then at that time, probably Iraq or Afghanistan. And um, yeah, I didn't really want to do that. You don't, you know, a military chaplain, I know you're, you're, you do have somebody with you at all time guarding you, you're protecting you, but I, I don't know. It just wasn't for me. I didn't want to be in that sort of situation. I know folks, I know a chaplain who did go to Afghanistan and was able to do some good work for the people, but I don't know that as much. But back to hospice. So I worked in hospice at um, Vitas for three years. Hospice, and one thing that's good is they're required to have chaplains for their teams um, each team consists of a doctor, nurses, a social worker, home health aides, and a chaplain. So I had about an average of 60 patients. Now, that doesn't mean it. So first of all, half of those patients, maybe the families decline your visits. And then the other half, you you do go, but you can. I saw probably three or four people a day. When you're in hospice, you're in your car, you're driving around. It's a lot of time kind of being on your own. For me, I didn't like it as much as the hospital. I'm a community type person, having lived in community and like to be with other people. So I often did visits with the social worker so we could go and visit together. Um, but yeah, so we, so three or four visits a day, a lot of people would honestly have, um, dementia was one of the diagnoses. So when you're working with someone with dementia, there's different levels. For long term, if they have it on the long, uh, more advanced, they won't even be able to talk to you, but you can still go and hold their hand, provide prayer. I say this though, because you might not feel as much 
coming back. And why I say that because I know as chaplains, it's not like we're supposed to be in it for ourselves to get something, but we also, as our careers, it's nice to feel that we also are making some sort of impact in the world. One thing I did in that hospice was I was able also to become a bereavement counselor and work with, uh, I would visit patients, spouses or family members if they wanted to after the loved one had died and sit with them for an hour every week or two and be a counselor for them. And that gave me a sense of purpose. But I did, I did like the visits, you know, like I said, there was people with dementia, dementias. Also, some people have it in a minor way. I mean, my mom was on hospice and she actually had dementia and I'd visit her. We'd have joyful visits. She wouldn't remember though, in five minutes, what we had talked about, but in that moment we had joy. And so people with dementia can be right there present and they can be your teachers on what it is like to be in the present moment because their brain is not making new short-term memories. And you can also work with them on life review and talk to them about the past. I talked to a guy who was in World War II who remembers walking down and and shooting at Nazis. It was a lot to take in, but I mean, these days probably is less and less people who have been in World War II, but there are people who have the dementia diagnosis who can also remember part of the diagnosis they do have their long-term memories are still there. And that can be very impactful to sit with them and talk about their life review. In hospice, there are nonprofits versus profits. That's something to look at if you're going to go into, into hospice. Um, a couple around here, I know Santa Cruz hospice is a nonprofit mission hospice in San Mateo and pathways. And um, I think they're based out of, San Jose, but those are nonprofits. Um, you know, hospice is a big time organization. There has been misuse in hospice in California. There's been lawsuits. You know, hospices get about $300 a day per patient. So you can imagine that if um, they can set that up and the patient might get, you know, visited by the chaplain, let's say once every couple of weeks, but by the nurse, maybe twice a week, a home health aide, a couple of weeks. So it's it's a lot less expensive to hire staff than for say, if you have a nurse working in a hospital who has to manage in an intensive care unit, they might be managing two patients for their whole shift. So that's something to look at if you do apply for the hospice, make sure that they're um, a valid hospice. And, you know, I have seen at least one friend get burned by working in hospice. It wasn't like a real hospice or somebody had set it up and they never got paid. And that person is actually in court right now. So in general, I think there's a lot of good hospices, but there is some sort of misuse of that going on. So just, just, just a, just a little putting out there just to be a little careful. Um, everyone in hospice has a six months diagnosis by two doctors. That doesn't mean that they will die in six months. Like I, my mom was on, I think two years, people can be, um, people can graduate hospice. They come off it. Um, but the majority do die and some die in the, you know, right away. I think more my time in hospice, I did um, have a lot of reflections about death, which would seem obvious because I was working with death. And I think that at least from the Buddhist tradition, um, we, you know, maybe you guys know about Marana Sati, the meditation on death can be a very powerful meditation because it can, if done correctly, can make, lead us to reflect on how great and how miraculous it is to be alive in this moment. I remember at Spirit Rock, they used to bring up a, um, like a skeleton figure when we were doing death meditation. And um, at one time I did have that sort of insight, like, oh my gosh, if people realized, you know, in the, in the light of where all are going to die. And in that light, wow, look at this life that we have. Look at this gift. That being said, I understand life as there's quite a bit of pain and sorrow and, but it is a gift and it is wonderful to think in that way. So I am saying that though, that hospice did bring to mind often death. Um, and one thing I did a lot there was I did perform quite a few funerals. I'm not quite sure if you need to be clergy to do this. Um, I was ordained during my CPE year. So I did, you know, was clergy, but that was something I was asked to do. Um, I then, you know, after, um, hospice work. I went back to the hospital. I worked at Stanford Children's, which I think I mentioned before at UCSF with the 13-year-old die. Stanford Children had a lot of long-term care 
kids. I was part-time there, so I didn't often see their whole trajectory and their dying. So I sort of avoided that. I dodged that bullet in a way, but working with children, it's very special. A lot of that work is with the parents, especially if they're very young, if they're teenagers, it's, it's sort of learning to work with teenagers. Um, if any of you have them, you walk in the room, how are you doing? They might just say, fine. They might just be on their phone. And it's, it's a, sort of a skill to see if you can work with teenagers. That was definitely a challenge there. Um, after that, I'm at my current job, which is the county hospital in Santa Clara County in San Jose. Um, this hospital is a trauma one hospital. So everybody in the area who is in a car accident or um, gunshot wound, any kind of thing comes to that hospital. Hospitals on like hospice have that intensity. You might be sitting relaxed in your office or doing something else. And then there's a code over the speaker and then you're you know, your system gets, your fight or flight might get going and you, you know, your adrenaline gets up because you're going to go to that situation as I described and be in a situation where somebody might be okay or they might not be. And it might be expected and it might not be. And if it's not expected and it's, the, the grief can be so intense and so raw. That being said, how do we deal with that? Take care of yourself. We learned this in CPE. I forgot to talk about that. We learned about self-care having someone to talk to, having a group, having ways to deal with that um, secondary trauma. Um, I was going to talk a little bit. I want to have some time for questions too, but secondary trauma is um, sort of, I've experienced that when I've gone into the ED and someone's died suddenly and they didn't, you know, weren't expecting it. And then I have the trauma of dealing with the trauma, the trauma of the parents or the people, the family members that I have, the secondary trauma. There's also another term called vicarious trauma. And when I looked that up, it says it's a, a shift in the clinician's attitude and worldview after prolonged exposure to patients suffering. I'm actually not quite clear about the difference, but I, I, I would think it's more about when you've seen somebody for a longer period of time or something that happens longer. But this is a part of the job that you can have secondary or vicarious trauma. You can also get compassion fatigue and these are things to look out for and to talk to your colleagues or friends or spouses or whoever you have about if you are getting to the estate, if you are compassion fatigue means your uh, physical, emotional and psychological impact of helping others. So if you are, you know, as a chaplain, you come in and you, you, you're seeing a lot of suffering, you can get a compassion fatigue. You can get to be too much for you if you don't take care of yourself. At the current hospital, what I find is I get quite a bit of moral distress. And what I mean by moral distress is because I go into a room, we have a lot of people who are uninsured, unhoused, and I provide care for this person. And then I think there are 400 other people in this hospital who need this care. It's a huge hospital. And there's um, I'm there part-time. There's one full-time chaplain and another person part-time. So we are very understaffed for what we need for that. For that amount of people, we rely a lot on our volunteers to also do visits. But I sometimes, you know, in the field of chaplaincy, except for hospice, where they're required to have a, a, a chaplain for every 60 or so people at hospital work, some hospitals just don't have, some don't even have a chaplain, or if they do, they have one. And that's, it's hard in that way. That's another, another stressor. One joy I did have at this wedding or at this hospital is I did a wedding. I performed a wedding for somebody who was, uh, this couple was in their thirties. Uh, she's undergoing cancer treatment. Um, we did it downstairs. I remember her, she came in her electric wheelchair and we you know, just sort of up the aisle and was able to, that's the only wedding I've actually performed. I've, I can't count on my hands the amount of funerals I've performed, but I did get to do a wedding and that was very uplifting and uh, gave me quite a bit of joy. There is quite a bit of sadness in this job, but there there is joy. And there is joy in seeing, even in CPE, seeing somebody in the neurology unit who got, you know, UCSF has probably one of the top neurology programs in the whole planet. And seeing somebody getting a tumor removed and it's gone and their joy and their family's joy, you know, and then we see the opposite as well. So that's our job. Um, let me... Let me, uh, the, 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 this slide, I want to just talk about some ongoing trainings. Um, 
So like, I think I talked about getting a master's of divinity is helpful. I worked through something called the Shogaku Institute. Happy to talk to people about it. I was able to use some of my time at Spirit Rock and Zen Center to help towards this degree. Uh, Reverend Grace Shearson put together the Shogaku Institute and it's a, it's a Buddhist program to help get this master's of divinity in Berkeley. I realize people are from all over, but I'm talking about in our area. There's a place called Institute of Buddhist Studies, IBS. It's out of the Graduate Theological Union. Um, it's not necessary, but it's it's helpful in our, to have that degree. It's helpful if you can to be ord- ordained, but I realize some people are in traditions that maybe don't ordain you or they don't have that inclination, and that's fine as well. If you do go on and work as a chaplain, I would say becoming board certified is really good. If that's going to be your work, that's helpful. Um, but being more, by being board certified, I have to do 50 hours of continuing education every year. I have to, I also sit on community committees to help other people be board certified. I didn't, you know, just to, just to be total candid, I didn't pass my first board. I, I wrote all my essays. I sat down on my first board. We had a lot of misunderstandings on, on the suffering of Christ and the suffering that I talked about in Buddhism. And, um, yeah, I didn't pass. And the second one I did though. So I did pass the second time. So I'm board certified, but I'm just pointing that out that we are in a world. We are breaking into this world. I went to the, um, this, I'm part of the Association of Professional Chaplains, the APC, and I went to their conference in Houston and spoke about Buddhist chaplaincy and, um, mindfulness, using mindfulness as a, tour, as a tool with patients. And, but the majority, um, I would say are, are Christians in our field, at least uh, nationwide. It's a little bit different if you're here in the Bay Area. Some other trainings I'd recommend, I, or I, well, I did a death doula training. Um, that to me seemed a lot like a lot of overlap for CPE, but if you don't want to do CPE and you're thinking about a career, you could be a death doula. That's somebody who actually sits, you know, works with a family at the time, you know, on top of even if they're in hospice and have a chaplain, you're there like a birth doula is there for a mom, you know, before the birth and during the birth, you're there before the death and during the death. Um, Other trainings are um, the Shiley Haynes Institute for Palliative Care is a good training in palliative care. Palliative care is... um, is a, is like our hospital has it. It's um, hospice is part of palliative care, but palliative care is not always people that are you know dying or have a six month diagnosis. They they usually just have some severe disease, and they you know the palliative care doctors and nurses and staff we help them just to well, for lack of a better word palliate to help ease palliate their 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 pain. And um, it's a great team. I'm so happy to be on that team. Um, another degree you could get is called the PCAHC, Advanced Palliative and Hospice Care. Um, or some recommendations is, I would say, you know, learning the Lord's Prayer is good. Gil actually told me to do that, memorize that, and, or Psalm 23. Um, you'll learn if you do CB how to do an emergency baptism. If you're comfortable with that, you don't have to do anything you're not comfortable with. Again, if you don't want to pray, you know, putting Christ in the name, you might not want to do that. Pray to the divine. One thing I did have to learn in CPU is to try to figure out what God meant to me because I was praying to God for people. I know with Buddhism, we don't have necessarily a God outside. We, our liberation depends upon ourselves. It is our, it is our duty and our practice that again, liberates ourselves. But in chaplaincy, we will need to pray to people and pray to God. So what is God? What does that mean? And I learned in CPI sort of came to the conclusion that that's all that is divine. And if that's Jesus Christ as someone, that's fine. If that's, if that's Shiva, if that's, you know, if that's, you know, I mean, when I say Shiva, cause that's, you know, one of the gods of Hinduism. And we think, you know, when I talk to my Hindu colleagues, Buddha was, was one of the divine incarnations of, of Vishnu, the, one of the main gods or the main god of Hinduism. I might, sorry if I'm messing that up, but my point is, having a sense of what you can pray to the divine is helpful as a chaplain, a Buddhist chaplain, because people are going to want you to pray to God and pray to the divine. And that can be um, helpful 
helpful for them. I was just looking at the chat 10 minutes. Um, another thing is um, learning to do commendation prayers. You know, that's commending somebody. Christians, uh, you know, I, I could share. I don't have one right here, but I do. You know, I could share one of those commendation is when somebody has died. A family asks you to come if they're Christian. There's some prayers that you can actually look up or get from a colleague like me and you, you know, you commend that soul to heaven or to God or to whatever they believe in their faith. You're always championing someone else's faith. Be curious and open. Don't take rejection personally. You go to a room. I went to a room to someone the other day. She said, F you. I was like, what? The person next to her said, oh, she can't hear you. I came closer. Hi, I'm Max. I'm with spiritual care. And she literally gave me the, the middle finger and um, she was really suffering and she died later that night. And I don't hold that against her. I feel with all my heart and met my loving kindness that she is in a, you know, wherever she wants to be, whether it's peaceful rebirth or heaven, whatever her destiny that she wants. I pray, you know, that's my prayer. It is a little shocking in the beginning, though, if somebody yells at you or, <laughs> or does that to you. Um, find support as needed. You'll need it. You'll need support in this job. There's just a lot of sadness and things that come up. Like I talked about secondary trauma, find mentorship as much as possible. Um, if you want to volunteer where I at, I'll help mentor you as much as I can. Uh, there are mentors out there and you will make mistakes. And luckily with our mistakes, it doesn't usually sound like when I talk to, I've talked to a nurse before who, you know, by mistake, gave the wrong medicine and almost killed somebody. That's much different. Our mistakes, we may, we might screw up the prayer. We might not do it right. We might, you know, our prayers aren't usually about life or death. And we come with a good heart and a heart of kindness and love for those people. And our mistakes are forgiven. Thank you very much. Thank you, Max. We have uh, we have just over five minutes still. If there's any questions, maybe we have time for a couple of questions. If anybody would like to ask anything to Max. Hi, Max. My name is Edward. It's great to um, <clears throat> great to meet you, and thank you so much for for your presentation. It was excellent. Thank you. Um, it's very inspiring too. I'm, I'm a hospice volunteer and just a lot of what you said resonated tremendously. So mm -hmm. I'm looking, uh, I'm actually at the Institute of Buddhist Studies as well. And we had a CPE day uh, where they had 12 different programs highlight their CPE programs. And I was just curious what it was that you use as your criteria for choosing a CPE program. So uh, I asked some of the other students, a lot of them were location-based um, some of them were, you know, diversity of, of the types of patients, specifically the um, the types of trauma wards they were dealing with. So I was hoping you could maybe talk about that. What was what were the criteria you used in choosing a program for yourself? For CPE program? Correct. For CPE yeah. specifically. I think my at that time, you know, I was I wasn't partnered and I was free and I, I kind of I honestly applied up and down. My criteria was. As far as far north as Alaska and as far east as Colorado, and I actually had they there was a program that wanted me to come to Alaska, but I then didn't want to go up there just because I just knew nothing about Alaska and the program. And then I also interviewed in on in um, Colorado Springs, and I just felt that that would have been a bit of a culture shock for me. So yeah. I think my criteria then I whittled it down that I wanted to be in the Bay Area just because I realized it was, uh, um, yeah, just the intensity of the program and also having to move to a whole new location would have been difficult for me. But I did look for programs like UCSF. I know I just looked for programs also that were were well-known, but in this area, I applied for Stanford, UCSF, John Muir Hospital. Are you in this area? Yeah, yeah those, those, those are the exact ones I'm looking at, Stanford, John Muir. I'm in Napa, and so those are the... the okay very local to me. 
Yeah, yeah. So UCSF, but I'll tell you that. So UCSF has like 13 or 15 students. So there's right. more of a chance. <laughs> That's so I didn't get into it's Stanford. I did get into UCSF, but Stanford only right. has six six students, you know. So that's and then I can't remember what happened with John Muir, but I think I picked UCSF because I just I yeah I just really like that program and I also had a place to live. But um, yeah, so I think that was sort of my criteria was location and then also like I don't know I really think they have a great program there, so I recommend that. But yeah, but definitely apply to multiple ones like you're doing. Yeah. Okay, that's really helpful. Might have follow-up questions for you. I really appreciate uh, your presentation today. Thanks, Max. Thank you. Thank you. Who's next? Is it Jim? Hey, Max. Hey, thank you today for the uh, talk. Very interesting and and inspiring. Um, One question I have for you in, in the hospital environment how do you find that you relate to the staff, to maybe the nursing staff in particular? Like I've had experience in three different hospitals. In each one, it feels like the spiritual care department is never really that well integrated with the rest of the staff. There's mm. always, a, you know, some nurses are more open than others, but there's often a bit of friction there. And then finding a way to feel like you're serving the staff. And again, it's usually especially the nursing staff. Uh, that you find you're able to provide spiritual care for them as well as patients and families. So you maybe just say something around that. Yeah, thank you, uh, Jim. That's a great question. So one thing I didn't mention is in CPE, when I was doing my charting, I charted at the nurse station, crowded by nurses. And I charted there so that I was able to check in and goof around and and get to know them and learn them. And then more of an informal way, um, provide care rather than going back to say a smaller office or somewhere to do my charting. So I think just my presence there and getting to know people saying hi to people in the morning or whenever you see them and building those relationships was helpful. And then people were more likely to open up to me and, um, I was able to provide, to provide care for them. Is that, so it sounds like Yep. The CPE, you were in the neuro unit for a whole year, right? So you're going to get to know the staff. But say yeah. currently where you are, you're in a bigger hospital, that you're there part-time. I'm assuming you're you're going through all the different units. So you're not going to get to know the staff as well as you did, presumably when you're just on one unit. Do you have yeah. a different time when you're in that environment? Yeah. So like, for example, since I worked in pediatrics, like I know the manager in pediatrics, I go and I spend time in my day and go like, go sit down with those people and or say, hi, I go visit. I spend time in my day. I work it into my day to visit with specific people. I'm going to visit with this nurse or go to that floor and check in with people. So I think if you can work in time to actually go and build those relationships, but you're right. I don't know a lot of the nurses at the County hospital. So, cause there's so many units and so many places to go, but we just do our best and just showing up and, and and making that effort and and you know learning a little bit about someone's life well how are your kids doing or how is this going Some, something like that mm-hmm. okay thanks max appreciate Thank it yeah sure um nancy it looks like hi max thank you hi. so much you really packed a lot in very generous of you so I just wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned, um, I know you can't uh, say a lot about everything in a short presentation, but I wanted to ask a little bit more about death doula programs. From from a quick glance, some of them seem to be very short. Yeah, I think my, that was like a 10-week program. And I think it, I guess for me, it wasn't as helpful as I thought it would be because I had learned a lot of the same skills in CPE. Ah. But if you're not going to do CPE, it could be a helpful program to learn about like things like dignity therapy, which is a kind of way of doing life review with people and, and raising up their dignity at end of life. There's there's different things. I, I recommend it, but I, I don't recommend it if you have done CPE. Let's put it that way. OK, great. That's very helpful. Thank you okay. very much. Sure. Thank you. So I see it's 10 o'clock. Do we, what are we? <laughs> it is. We're at time. That hour just flew by. Max, thank you so much, sure. really. Um, I feel like 
you, you gave such a sort of varied and detailed account of the work that you do and you really didn't pull any punches about the more challenging sides of it um but also reminded us that there is joy in the work too so thank you so much and thank you everybody for being here um this this all the sati centers um programs and talks benefit greatly from donations that people give i've just popped a little link there um to the donations page um if you would like to donate for today's event um and so we will bid you goodbye current students current participants of the sati uh, buddhist chaplaincy training from both the in person and the online programs um could you stay on the zoom call if you can but um everybody else will say goodbye and in a couple of weeks so i think two saturdays from now and that's november 4th we will have io yetunde coming to speak to us about her work in chaplaincy so very much looking forward to that thank you everybody and have a lovely day <laughs>